I love Easter sunrise services. I mean, it's just, I just love them. I cannot wait for the next Easter sunrise service. However cold, however early, I'm there. Because that's where you really get the core group, you know? I mean, you know, you don't have hanger-ons, you don't have people, cultural Christians. I mean, when you get to Easter sunrise service, you look around the circle, the humble, however humble, that's the core group. And it's a great experience. And one of my favorites at times was April of 1996, when my wife and I made our way up a place called Sutra Hill for the Easter sunrise service. Now, Sutra Hill is a very famous spot in Scotland. We were living in Scotland at the time, and it's where they discovered a uh, 12th century hospital. In fact, it's one of the biggest sources for what hospitals were like in the 12th century. You don't want to go back there. But they discovered, for example, uh, even in this day, they discovered live anthrax spores still there in that site. It's a very famous archaeological site. So we went up there, and of course, you have to realize that if you know Scotland's way north, and so it is, you, you must arrive in the pitch dark to even hope uh, to make it to a, sun, a regular service in the daytime. So we get there, and again, it's a bedraggled group, maybe 20 people there, and we arrive for our sunrise service. And we're going to sing the service, and we're going to, uh, you know, the sun will be dawning as we're having the service. We, we arrive in the complete dark. And so the pastor, uh, Peter Gardner, he was there, and he sat, you know, he stood there in this certain thing. We were like a little half circle around him, okay? Now, you have to realize Scotland is a very agrarian country. Okay, to give you a little comparison, Kentucky, not exactly the urban center of the universe, uh, has four and a half million people. The whole of Scotland only has five million people, the whole country. And most of them live in Glasgow. And so when you actually get out into Scotland, you mostly have sheep. Uh, there are five million people in Scotland. There are seven million registered sheep, official sheep in Scotland. Sheep outnumber people in Scotland. So we're there on this hill, you know, and we're in a little half circle. We had several songs in the dark, and he began to preach the resurrection of Christ at one of these great Easter sunrise services. And as the light came up, we realized that we were not alone. The half circle, which we thought we had, was in fact a full circle. And the sheep had come down from the hills, thinking we were going to bring in turnips or something. In Scotland, they feed turnips to the sheep. And sure enough, the sheep had settled in for the, to hear the message. And so the pastor who thought he was the head of a half circle was the middle of a full circle. And it really reminded me that this resurrection of Christ is a cosmic event. All of creation wanted to proclaim Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. Amen? Amen. And so I was there thinking, now there's, that's, that's good when even the sheep come out for the resurrection. But the gospel accounts, uh, in all of the gospel accounts, we're actually, we're, we realize that the resurrection has implications for us. This is our eighth part in this series on servanthood. We are the commissioned servants of God into the world. And so you have to see the resurrection as kind of like a great 
divine explosion that reverses everything. And we saw hints of this, you know, when, when we touch lepers, we catch leprosy. When he touches lepers, they catch health. He's in this reversal mode. And we now find even death itself is reversed by Jesus. All of our sin, all of our contagion, all of our fears, all of our depressions, all the things that we spend our whole life running from, Jesus reverses the whole thing. So this is a cosmic event which changes everything we know about the world that we lived in. And so Christ, uh, as the post-resurrection Lord, gives us repeated great commissions that apply to us as the people of the risen Lord. So all of the gospel accounts have great commissions, not simply the gospels recording the same event, but different events. Matthew 28, which we heard a moment ago, is, of course, the one in Galilee. Mark is an undisclosed location. Uh, Luke 24 is actually on um, Easter, but it's, I mean, I'm sorry, on, in Jerusalem, but at the very end, just before the ascension in, uh, in, in Bethany, Acts 1.8 is in Bethany. Uh, John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, is in Jerusalem on the night of Easter itself, but it's no verbal overlap from the other great commissions. So you actually have at least four great commissions in at least three locations, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Jerusalem Bethany, and, uh, and Galilee, that are, in a sense, reminding the church over and over again that we have this commission to go out into all the world. Now, because of time, we have to focus on Matthew's gospel, but I do want to make a few points about Matthew's gospel text, which we read to you. Now, of all the Great Commission, by the way, this was never called the Great Commission until the 19th century. This is a modern-day phrase, but it's always been the Great Commission. It's always been the final commission of Christ, and everyone understood that. But when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, which is in our generation at least the most famous of these texts, uh, we often think of it as kind of a tacked-on thing. Now, I want to I delete that file from your head. The Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel is not simply an add-on, kind of like an afterthought to the end of the resurrection. This is integral to Matthew's entire Gospel mission. So, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, you have, uh, right at the very beginning, you have the genealogy of Matthew's Gospel, which includes four Gentiles, in men and women. You have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Luke, Luke's genealogy has no women and no Gentiles. Here's Matthew with four women, four Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth a Moabite, and Bathsheba is believed to be a Hittite. Second, Matthew is the only gospel that brings us the Magi coming from the east, the famous Magi who come there in their bathrobes, you know, and they bring <laughs> things to the Christ child. But in the Matthew account, they're streaming from the east, the wise men, to honor Christ. This is the, quoted as Isaiah 60, the nation streaming to the light. All that is in Matthew's gospel. We have in Matthew's gospel the flight to Egypt. You remember how in Matthew's gospel, they have the persecution, and the Holy Family travels to Egypt. This, of course, recapitulates Israel's history, who comes out of Egypt back into the Promised Land. Jesus recapitulates that. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, is quoted in that passage. And this is a really important point, because this is part of the redemption of the nations, because Egypt was known as the nation that had encaptured and enslaved God's people. 
And now they're being actually heralded as the one that protects the Messiah. So this is the redemption of Egypt. Very, very important theme, because especially today, we have to really remind you that redemption, reconciliation is part of God's plan for all people. Then you have, in Matthew's gospel, you have the gospel being unfolded in and revealed in Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So the whole light of the gospel emerges in the north in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. Matthew's gospel is filled with various parables and ministry of showing God's grace beyond Israel. Think about this. These are special Matthew passages. The vineyard laborers, the parable of the two sons, not the prodigal son, but the two sons, the parable of the wedding feast, the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the sheep and the goats, all of those are in Matthew's gospel. Matthew gives us Gentile healings of the Roman centurion servant, the Gerizim demoniac, the Canaanite woman's daughter. All that is in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is the one that gives us the sign of Jonah. Remember where, so here's again another reversal theme. So we think of Jonah as the one who fled from God. We associate him as someone who runs away from God. He's a bad image to us. But how does Christ identify with Jonah? Jonah becomes a Christ figure. Just as Jonah was inside the belly of the fish and he gets spewed out to preach the gospel to the nation, so Christ goes into the belly of the earth and we come out and the gospel is preached to the nation. So Jonah is a sign of Christ in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is the one that gives us that apocalyptic text in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel, the kingdom we preached in the whole world as testimony to what? All nations. Somebody knows it. And then, Emily, was that you, Emily? God bless you. All right. <laughs> and then the end will come, Matthew 2014. That's found only in Matthew's gospel. And, of course, at the crucifixion of Christ in Matthew's gospel, it is not the Jewish believers who say anything. The word of faith comes from the Roman centurion, the guard, who said, surely this is the Son of God. So when time you get to Matthew 28, this is not something tacked on this is integral to Matthew's gospel to proclaim the centrality of Christ for the world. So here he is. It's very appropriate. Again, only Matthew's gospel gives a great commission in Galilee, on the mission field, amongst the Gentiles, not down in Jerusalem in the center of power where you find in Mark, Luke, and John's gospel. He says in this place, Now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, I also love the fact that it says, we actually didn't include this in the reading today, but just before that, as he re revealed himself, some doubted. Okay, it's one of the great signals of authenticity of the Word of God that were recorded that when the risen Lord appeared. This is probably that gathering of 500 that's referred to in other places in, in Corinthians. That some were there like, oh, I'm not so sure. All right? Because if you were making the story up, you would not include that, all right? And also, it's great to be reminded, as we find in John's gospel, that God has a special love for doubters, all right? Remember Thomas, the doubter? We call him Doubting Thomas. Guess who makes the most profound declaration of the deity of Christ in the New Testament? Thomas, my Lord and my God. Guess who goes the farthest with the gospel of any of the apostles? He goes, he goes to his, his, his country for the gospel, 52 AD. So the Lord loves doubters. 
So when you are preaching and you're proclaiming the gospel as minister of God, you find someone says, well, so-and-so's a doubter. You say, Praise God, the gospel's for doubters. Because God turns doubters into great proclaimers of the gospel. So here the women make their way to the tomb. And, of course, Easter Sunday is reminding us that this reversal has happened, that Jesus Christ holds the keys of death and hell. Someone say hallelujah. hallelujah. Uh, in Jesus Christ, the sin and death have been vanquished. Hallelujah. The blood of the Lamb has made you and me more than conquerors. Hallelujah. The, the stone, the bit rejected, has become the cornerstone. Hallelujah. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, the world is captivated by the fact that Elon Musk is going to try to buy Twitter. <laughs> the world is captivated by whatever the latest thing Kim Kardashian says. The world is, can't wait for the next Taylor Swift song or whatever. The world can't wait to find out who will be the next speaker of the house. Let me tell you, I, I promise you, on the other side of eternity, no one will care about any of those things. So you are investing yourself in what actually matters. This is, I mean, you are in the, the great proclamation of what really matters in the history of the world. It won't matter who owns Twitter or what someone Twittered or that you did Twitter or you read Twitter today. What matters is that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and that we are the people of the risen Lord. You know, Alexander the Great wept that he had no more worlds to conquer. And yet today, travel all over the world, every corner of the world, where will you find anybody who says, well, it's not I who live, but Alexander the Great who lives in me? No. Nero was worshipped as God, but no one says, I can do all things through Nero who strengthens me. Napoleon uh, was crowned king of the universe. But in fact, nowhere today will anyone say that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, and Napoleon is Lord. But all of this is said about Jesus Christ because it's true. So the kings of this world, the social media people of this world, all of the makers of this world will pass away but the gospel will not. And this is why Asbury was founded. In fact, H.C. Uh, Morrison, our founder, I hope the faculty remember this, H.C. Uh, Morrison used to say, okay, we got, I see Lawson Stone there. We'll say Lawson Stone comes forward to uh, be interviewed, be, the, be a, pr a president, or be a, 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 a professor at Asbury. H.C. Morrison would say, interview him. In those days, by the way, the president just hired the faculty. Weren't those the days? Just joking. <laughs> Anyway, comes in, so he interviews Lawson and says, yeah, he knows about the Old Testament. Yeah, he, he's, he's pretty solid. But at the end, they had a little extra thing at the end of the interview process. Morrison would say, hey, meet me at a camp meeting. Now, Morrison was preaching at a camp meeting every single week. All right? He died preaching at a camp meeting. That's how, that's how he ended his life. He was at a finished camp meeting, came home and died in a tent. So he would say to Lawson, uh, hey, join me to, for the camp meeting this Tuesday night, you know, such and such place. And they'd get in their cart, go out there to wherever in Kentucky. And at the time of the altar call, he would say, Lawson, please come forward and you give the altar call. And of course, Lawson, being Lawson, could do it. And that's why he's here. 
Because more seems to say, if a man can't give an altar call, he has no business being a professor at Asbury Seminary. <laughs> Amen? If you can't preach the gospel, I'm one of my favorite experiences was in Turkey. I was with Greg Beale. Greg Beale, one of the great New Testament scholars in the, in the world. And we were there together, and we were in, this, we were in Turkey, uh, visiting all the sites of the Apostle Paul. And so we were there, and, and he, was, this, he had just finished a book on Revelation that was this thick. It was like Keener-esque, all right? <laughs> and we were at the seven sites, you know, the seven churches in Revelation, going to each of the seven churches. And he was going to give a little blurb of each one, you know. And so very erudite, very, God knows everything about the seven spots and the Revelation letters and all that. So he was going on about that. Well, I looked around, I noticed all these Turkish kids that were gathered around this big circle. And he kept saying, well, you know, he referred to the gospel a couple of times in his little talk, you know. And so I said to Dr. Beale, Dr. Beale, what is the gospel? I saw these kids around. He's like, why is a professor from the seminary asking me what is the gospel? Dr. Beale, what is the gospel? Well, finally he realized it. And so here's this great scholar of the New Testament who suddenly began to turn and he shared with us beautifully and powerfully what is the Christian gospel, the implications of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the implications of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And it was great. And later on when he got back home, we had a night to talk about our, you know, what we loved about the trip. And he said his favorite moment in the trip was when he was asked. He didn't know why at the time, but he realized that what is the gospel? Because at heart, we all want to be evangelists. This is what your call is. You want your life to be oriented in whatever way gifts God's given you to be part of the evangelistic ministry of the church to the ends of the earth. Now, uh, in this back to the text here, G.K. Chesterton was once asked, what is the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world? And he said quite insightfully, all religions can be taught but only Christianity can be proclaimed. Because we're not simply about, you know, morals and teachings. All that's true. But at the end of the day, after all is said and done, we are a proclamation to the ends of the earth. And this is why we bring this message. It's an explosion out of the empty tomb, and it reverberates out to the ends of the earth. When I was in China, I was, uh, we, I was there teaching English for a semester with, with 10 English teachers. I had a wonderful time. I was in the city of Wuhan, which became later famous for the coronavirus. But there in Wuhan, where I taught, uh, we had the, the Chinese government were just so gracious to host us. And they, they, were, they were wonderful, the way they took all kinds of famous sites and the Great Wall of China and all these places we went. It was amazing. But we were in this one place. It was this massive temple of one of the largest Buddhas in, in China. And if you walk into this large Buddhist temple is a big central aisle, and there on the platform is this massive statue of the Buddha with a huge, and I mean huge, stomach, smiling. So we're there, I'm there looking at this big Buddha, and my, uh, the translator for us, Shang Fei, was worked with us the whole time I was there, she turned to me and she said to me, do you know why the Buddha has such a big stomach? And so I said, no, I don't. Why is Buddha's stomach so big? Because in India, where, where we worked, the Buddhas there are like emaciated. You can, you can, you can actually count their ribs in, in India. 
By the time you get to the Far East, the Buddhas have taken on weight, a lot of weight. So I said to her, no, tell me, why is the Buddha so big? And she said to me, well, when I was a little girl, I came into this very temple, and I saw this Buddha. I couldn't believe how big the stomach was. And I asked my parents, why is the Buddha's stomach so big? To which my parents said, the reason the Buddha's stomach is so big is so he can contain all of our sins. Before I had a chance to respond to that, I'm just kind of absorbing this information. She says herself, she says to me, she said, but I've never believed a statue could contain my sins. And I said to her, and of course, being a preacher of the gospel, like that, that's a real open door. <laughs> Even I could pick up on that. I was like, Sean Fei, I said, that's exactly the point. The, a statue cannot contain your sins. The gospel is about a risen Lord who raised from the dead, the right hand of the Father, who purchased your salvation and is ready now to receive you. And so I had the, I think, unique opportunity in my life at least to preach the gospel in a Buddhist temple. And so uh, fast forward uh, several weeks, a lot more conversations, but eventually she comes to me and our team and she says, I want to be baptized and I want to know this living Savior. And then she said to our surprise, because I thought, okay, I'm a Methodist, we'll do something very simple in her apartment, you know, and sprinkle some water on her head. She went, no, 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 she said, I want to be baptized where the, Shan, where the Han and the Yangtze River meet. It's like one of the great river junctures of China, which is in, in, there in Wuhan. I was like, this is communist China. We can't go down to the, where these river junctures meet and have a baptism. She said, I want to be baptized where the Yangtze and Han never meet. How can you deny her? So she said, I, I need an ordained minister. I said, I'm an ordained minister. Okay, let's do it. So I said, okay, let's do it at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> so we agreed. That's called Vaz's a serpent, innocent a dove. <laughs> so I go, we go down, three or four of the brothers, we go down, we take her down to the river. Now, if you know me, you know, at 9 o'clock, 9.30, I'm like moving quickly toward bed. If I'm awake after 10 o'clock, it's a national crisis, all right? So to me, 2.30, the whole world should be sleeping. And not in Wuhan, China. The place is alive and well at 10, 2.30 in the morning. So I was like, oh, Lord, we've got to have a quiet place. This is unbelievable. There's, what are these people doing up at 2.30 in the morning? Why are they awake? So finally, we found this very quiet place, and it made these little concrete steps going right down to the Yangtze River. We go down into the river, and uh, there I had the privilege of baptizing her in the Yangtze River, right there where the Han and Yangtze meet. And when she came out of the water of baptism, <clears throat> I never forget the, the, the look on her face as she emerged from the waters of baptism. The light from her face could illuminate that city. And to this day, she's a tremendous witness for the Lord, a Chinese believer. And she even said to me afterwards, she said, uh, I thought, where did she get this theology? Because she wanted to be you know, immersed. She said, I want a baptismal certificate. <laughs> well, I carry those with me all the time. <laughs> and so I went to the Chinese government, because that's how things, it's a very bureaucratic place, and I had to requisition a typewriter. I eventually got a typewriter, and I mean an old-fashioned typewriter. Have you ever seen one of these where you push a button and a key goes up? 
they didn't have those in the, in the 80s. And so I put the paper, I made like a big border around it, and I made it fancy, and I created a baptismal certificate. I stamped it with some official stamps, I signed it, and I gave it to her. And years later, when she got married, uh, she invited me to the wedding, because I've known her for years, and she said to me, at the end of the service, she said to me, she kind of winked at me and says, by the way, I still have my baptismal certificate. But she's a testimony to the power of the risen Lord. That's why today we had all these nations speak to you, Christ is risen, risen indeed, because this is a global reality of what God is doing. Muhammad said, I know the way. Buddha said, I have seen the way. Confucius said, I have taught the way. The Vedic mediators of Hinduism said, we have heard about the way. But Jesus said, I am the way. That's the difference. Jesus Christ is the way to God. He is the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave. And in this next part of this passage, he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. This is our call as a dispersed servant of the world. Now, this passage, as you, I know you know this, but your parishioners will not know this. The word go is not the word, is not the imperative in this passage. Everybody assumes it is, but the whole passage assumes that you're going. If Christ is risen, you don't need an imperative to go. You're already being blasted out in the world. You're, this is an overflow of joy. So the whole, that's a participle. It's, it's as you are going, as you are baptizing, as you are teaching, the comparative is make disciples. That's why Asbury exists. That's why you are called here to go out and make disciples. That is, that is the central and only command of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel is to make disciples. That is to go forth, plant churches. Now we need, right now, we need, there, right now there are 37 million churches in the world. We estimate that we need, right now, 10 million new churches all over the world. 500,000 of those alone in the USA alone. Now, that's the only way to reach a billion people, by the way, is to plant 10 million new churches. That's what we have to do. That is the, the call. Now, you can't personally plant 10 million churches, but you can plant one or two, and we're part of that. Asbury's part, I think it, we have to be at least 10,000 churches we have to plant. As a seminary, we have to do that. We've planted, we've already trained a thousand church planters uh, here in the last 10 years, but we need to do a lot more because we believe that church planting is the key to, to, to the church uh, bringing to new people groups. I've never believed in the idea that every Christian is a missionary. And the reason I don't believe that is because every Christian is an evangelist. So everybody has a responsibility to bring the gospel to people that you know and can speak to. But there are many people who are out, who will, are not in touch with that. They cannot be reached through the normal way. So if, for example, you were to take every Christian in the world and make them into an evangelist, let's we'll just say with, a, with one prayer, every Christian was just an unbelievable evangelist. All right, just, you know, Billy Graham-esque, H.C. Morrison-esque, I just... You got it. You got your own fire. You're evangelizing everybody you meet. And, and that's every Christian in the world becomes an evangelist. And every single person you witness to comes to Christ instantly. 
Now, that's a pretty good scenario, wouldn't you say? And that's like kind of like, you know, that's high aspiration. So even if we had those two things where every Christian was an amazing evangelist and you could stop any bus, go to New York City, get on every subway, the whole subway would come to Christ before you got to the next stop. Every school, every university campus, everyone you talked to would come to Christ immediately. When that all happened, we would have, and this is, this is the amazing news, we would have a billion new Christians in the world. It would be that many people would come to Christ in this evangelistic rally. It would be the biggest evangelistic rally in the world. Uh, the, so the church, the church would go from 3.2 billion to 4.2 billion, just like that. But then this is the thing that's important to realize. Even with that, which is the most optimistic possible scenario, there would still be one billion people who never heard the name of Jesus. See, that's the problem. We, the church cannot do its work even with the most vigorous evangelism. Somebody, some have to cross lines and bring the gospel to those who otherwise would not, could not hear it. Because those people, they have no neighbors, they have no friends, they have no school workers that know the gospel. They have none of that. And therefore, we as the people of God must always be aware of those who are out of reach from the gospel. Well, do we hear the call? I think about the call that God has given to his people all through the ages. That first one we all think of is the cry from above, Isaiah 6, where the Lord says, who shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Do any of you hear that call from above where God would say to you, I am calling you into ministry in ways that you've not yet even contemplated. You're calling. Are you hearing his call to go to something maybe you never really thought was even part of your ideas? Or how about the call from below? And that amazing text in, uh, in Luke 16 with the rich man Lazarus, where Lazarus goes into paradise and the rich man goes into Hades is in total torment. And what does he beg Abraham to do? Please, please let Lazarus go out to preach the gospel to my five brothers. They will not perish like I do. Even, even this man in torment from below called us to bring the gospel to those who would not otherwise hear it. How about the call from without in Acts where Paul has that Macedonian man call it vision at night where the Macedonian man calls Paul to come across into Europe and to bring the gospel there. And he had a right turn in mind to go into Asia. God had called him like a left turn that night and he goes into Asia and the Macedonian man becomes a Philippian woman and he brings the gospel first to Lydia and the rest is this amazing movement of the gospel throughout Europe because Paul listened to this cry from without. And then there's that cry from within where Paul says in Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us. I have something inside of me like Jeremiah, that fire inside of me that can't be put out. And I hope that seminary never becomes for you a deadening influence. Because sometimes you can learn so much and know so much that you can kind of think your way out of just being on fire for Jesus. 
Don't ever, let, let, always let seminary make you on fire, more on fire. That's why the opening convocation of our new students is always scholars on fire. Because that's our goal here, to that piety joined together with your heart that you might come together with proper learning to be the best you can be for Christ. So there is this amazing call in the Great Commission, but it resonates with all these calls throughout Scripture that we might hear God's call for us and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what it means to the people of the risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this day. And Lord, stir hearts here to hear your call. We all know we've been called in some way, but Lord, may you give us those calls that we didn't expect. Lord, because you always want to bring us to the least, the lost, the last, those that everyone's forgotten about, that everyone's despised. Lord, your people are always there. Lord, help us to be your people and always to be the people that extending the risen Lord to every nook and corner of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.